Hello, Powerhouse Politics listeners. There's a new podcast we wanted to tell you about from our colleagues at ABC News, and this is a good one. It's called In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson, and it's full of new revelations about Lyndon Johnson's presidency, and it reveals the former First Lady as actually LBJ's closest advisor, maybe most indispensable political partner, a side of her we just have never seen before. Lady Bird had a daily audio diary that she kept throughout the entire Johnson presidency. This podcast draws from 123 hours of those recordings and presents a surprising and original portrait of the former first lady told in her own words. You hear how Lady Bird Johnson quietly shaped the future of our country and influenced the Johnson presidency, including the decision to end it. Search for In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson, wherever you're listening right now. And we'll leave a link for you in the episode description, too. Hello, and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. A lot going on, Rick. We have uh, big news out of the Biden White House on the vaccine. It looks like we're all going to get a vaccine by the end of May. A big push on, on, on school reopenings. But before we get to all that, I just want to uh, you know, and, and since we're in the COVID land, I, I'm noticing the two of the kind of shining stars of, of uh, you know, of the handling of the pandemic, uh, the, the Democratic governors of California and New York, you, you know, both of them, uh, Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo. Um, one seems to be headed towards uh, a certain recall uh, effort. And, and Andrew Cuomo, I mean, the shine the shine is gone. It's more than gone. And the question is whether he survives. And it, whether he's gone. Whether he's gone even before, uh, he doesn't face a recall. He's up for voters next year. But the question about whether he uh, whether he is forced out before then is a very real one right now. It's fascinating because you've got here the, the governors of the two largest blue states in the country. As you said, John, very high profile for their handling of COVID. Andrew Cuomo literally wrote a book about it. And it was, it was a national a uh, poster child from, from Joe Biden on down for how to handle uh, the, the the pandemic, and to have him now in this situation, you know, John, you covered New York politics for a while. Uh, you've got some insight into into Andrew Cuomo. Uh, I would posit that he is in in bigger danger of losing his job, being kind of forced out of that job, uh, than Gavin Newsom, even though he doesn't face a recall like Newsom does. Uh, but it's it's fascinating to see the the pressures that they're under for COVID and in the case of Andrew Cuomo for uh, some scandal, sexual harassment allegations uh, that are out there. But what, 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 what is your, what is your take? Does, does Cuomo hang on? Is he able to, is he able to withstand the pressure? Look, whether or not he resigns, I mean, it, I need to remind you, do you know who the governor of Virginia is, right? I, I do. I do. Okay. I do. Yes. Still. Yes. Yes. And you know who the, who the Lieutenant governor of Virginia indeed. is? Indeed. Indeed. And, and and you remember a time when both of them were surely going to be gone. Yes. When I when every major uh, Democratic figure uh, nationally and and frankly on on a, on a statewide level uh, was was calling for them both for their reasons to resign, and they are both there. Um, I, uh, I I think that, that Andrew Cuomo. I mean, who knows uh, what he himself will do? He doesn't seem like a big uh, you know back away from a fight guy and resign kind of a guy. Uh, but his political career is done. And, and, and remember, this, this started uh, before the sexual harassment um, allegations. You had the, you know, the, the, the allegations that he had been misreporting, underreporting the nursing home deaths uh, in New York, had not been transparent with the data, had been blocking the release of the data. Uh, you had uh, the, the way he bullied uh, New York Assemblyman Ron Kim 
uh, saying what, what was the line he was going to destroy him, um, yeah. which was um, a line that was denied, but boy, sure rang true for many t- anybody who had spent time around around Andrew Cuomo. Uh, and these allegations are just are are, are devastating. Um, I mean, really, I mean, all, all three of them in their own ways, um, just just absolutely devastating. So. I, you know, I, it's, it's hard to see, um, it's hard to see how he survives politically. I mean, I think that we can probably already say he won't, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, this was a guy not long ago we were talking about as a, as a future potential presidential candidate, even, even a, even a, a you know, a, maybe a future president. I mean, my Lord. And, 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 and at this point, running for a fourth term, breaking his dad's record in New York seems off the table. No. If, it, if that changes, I think I think it may force him in a different direction. But here's here's what's fascinating to this on, on one level. You know, Democrats are, are very familiar with these kind of reckonings. They've imposed standards on themselves often that are frankly different than on Republicans. And in the case of covid as well. I mean, look, this is what, what, what has what has uh, Cuomo in hot water uh, initially for just uh, for, for not for not being transparent about data, uh, and Newsom in hot water for you know, one particular dinner he had that 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 suggested that French he wasn't laundry. Ab- French laundry. He wasn't that he wasn't abiding by the same rules that he was forcing others to. And at this moment that we're seeing the country begin to reopen and really agitate toward reopening, you referenced schools at the top. Uh, Governor Newsom is now moving a little more aggressively in that direction. We're going to see this play out in a big way in ways that I think could foreshadow the midterms in 2022 and the potential problems that Biden faces. The backlash against COVID and against COVID restrictions. Democrats own this now. Joe Biden on down and governors on down. Now, Cuomo is a different different circumstance. Uh, I think, though, one thing that makes him, that does set him apart from Newsom is that uh, there's really nobody in the Democratic Party who's got much use for Andrew Cuomo, uh, in part because he's been around for a very long time, more than a decade as governor, in part because of his abrasive personality. Newsom still has the backing of most California Democrats and most of the the, the official uh, California uh, uh, apparatus in the Democratic Party. Until or unless he loses that, I think he's in better shape to survive a, a recall than you might think. But uh, I, I don't know. Cuomo is Cuomo is a particular uh, a particular challenge at this moment, uh, and and you're just seeing the, the the way Democrats really have very little use for the guy. I mean, I mean, Andrew Cuomo is somebody who's known as a bully. I mean, that was his, frankly, his brand, um, that, you know, and I mean, he'd be bully, bully for you. Uh, you know, he, he is a guy, look, I, I first got to know him, um, a long time ago when, when his, when his father was governor and I, I covered the, uh, the Mar- Mario Cuomo's last, uh, governor's race, um, when he ran unsuccessfully for, for a fourth term back in 1993. Um, 1994, I'm sorry, 1994, and against Pataki. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got more than a few phone calls from Andrew Cuomo, uh, you know, screaming about something that I reported or, you know, I mean, he, he, this, this is the way he operates. And you, know, you can operate by fear until people no longer fear you and then they loathe you. Um, and, um, you know, you, you look at the, the, the allegations, particularly uh, his, his former aide, Charlotte Bennett, uh, 25 years old, um, and it, it now turns out we, we've learned that she actually filed a complaint against him uh, in 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 June of last year. I mean, this is at the absolute height of the kind of cult of Andrew Cuomo when he is seen as the guy who's, you know, 
uh, helping the country, not just New York, helping the country kind of grasp the um, the pandemic, his, his press conferences, must-see TV. Uh, and then he's, you know, I mean, the, the allegations are, 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 are frankly stunning. 25-year-old former aide, the way he's talking to her, a victim of, of sexual assault, again, while he's at the peak of his popularity. And you know that the, the, the Biden White House doesn't want to go near this. It's a tough storyline for any national Democrat. We saw Kirsten Gillibrand kind of running away from the cameras on this. Uh, she, of course, was the, the first prominent senator to come out against Al Franken and force him ultimately out of office. Uh, so that Democratic reckoning is out there. And I think, you know, to bring it back to COVID, uh, the, 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 the political pressures that are now fully falling on the Biden White House, a critical week for, for COVID uh, relief, uh, the push going on in the Senate, uh, where they're going to have to be at as much party unity as possible. No, no, cannot lose a single vote. Uh, if you're Joe Biden, he's pleading for his party to stick together at this moment. Uh, and the country is alternately, I think, hopeful. It looks like with this, this news about Johnson & Johnson and Merck working together uh, and the, the promises from President Biden that the vaccine timeline gets moved up a little bit, that all Americans should have access to a vaccine a little bit earlier than previously thought. Uh, but it's also a time, I think, of a lot of frustration out there. And you see this bubbling up uh, with schools. You see it happening in Texas, where the governor is lifting all of the, the restrictions on businesses and on mask wearing. Uh, public health officials are worried about this. Uh, and, and, and it's going to be a balance for President Biden and the White House to, 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 to show some optimism, but to also temper expectations so that behaviors don't change in a substantial way. It was interesting. We heard uh, from from Biden, um, uh, you know, making the, the big announcement. I'm pleased to announce today as a consequence of the stepped up process that I've ordered and just outlined, this country will have enough vaccine supply. I'll say it again for every adult in America by the end of May, by the end of May. That's progress, important progress. Uh, we also heard him. I think Trevor has the sound. Uh, say that teachers, teachers are, are, you know, he wants to see teachers prioritized uh, right, right, right there at the front of the line in, in getting the vaccine now. Not every educator will be able to get their appointment in the first week, but our girl, goal is to do everything we can to help every educator receive a shot this month, the month of March. And, and, and Rick, this is a big, this is, this is the most explosive, I think, of, of, of all the COVID issues is what is happening with schools. And it may be the most frustrating one for the White House, for the administration. Just today, uh, the First Lady Jill Biden and the new education secretary are traveling to schools in Pennsylvania and Connecticut to, to try to highlight schools that are reopening. But we remember that bold promise that the administration offered about uh, about a majority of schools open with up in, in the first 100 days. He's already, the president's walked that back. It's frustrating because it puts him uh, in the crosshairs of, of teachers unions in some cases. Uh, it also uh, it also is one of those areas where you can mandate whatever you want. You can you can demand whatever you want. And we remember a, a previous president doing quite a bit of that, John, at the podium about uh, about what places and, and, and schools needed to be doing. But these are controlled by state and local leaders. And um, I, the White House has been adamant about not conditioning funding on reopening. There's not much else you can do other than some public pressure and some jawboning. Uh, and this is an area that, that's going to break through beyond people that are really tuned into politics. Uh, people want their kids back at school. Uh, they they want to get back to lives. They're, the weather turning a little bit is part of it. And uh, this is going to be a, a, a perilous time, even aside from the, the politics of the COVID relief bill, to make sure that this White House can deliver on this big promise. All right, Rick, let's take a very quick break. We're going to come back with our guests, the authors of a book that is making a lot of waves right now about the 2020 campaign. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by the authors of a new book, Lucky How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. It is the inside story of the 2020 presidential campaign and Joe Biden's harrowing ride to victory. Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. So let, let me start with you, Amy. I, I, I want to get in. You have some, first of all, some fascinating stuff about the, uh, the role that Barack Obama played over time. But since we were just talking about Andrew Cuomo, I want to, there's one little detail you had uh, that, that kind of jumped out to me about Andrew Cuomo's uh, legendary speech at the 2020 Democratic Convention, except I, I didn't get a chance to see it. Can you, can you tell us what, what, what happened? Sure. Um, Well, you know, everyone was trying to record messages. It was a virtual convention, obviously. Um, And he had to, he was tasked with doing that. Of course, when you record a message, you have to really get into the um, nominee and why the nominee is great. Um, And what Cuomo did, Governor Cuomo did, is he basically talked about himself the whole time. And that annoyed a lot of people, a lot of the convention planners and folks in the Biden campaign, um, because you're not really supposed to do that. And so um, when his aides were asked if he could re-record the speech, um, he declined. (laughs) Um, And so a source essentially told us that they put his speech on our doorstep, lit it on fire, rang the doorbell, and then ran away, (laughs) uh, which I thought was a really funny thing to say and um, encapsulate that moment. And, and reminding us that we ended up not as a result seeing uh, uh, that, that message from Andrew Cuomo at the convention. And now given, anyway, uh, the rest is history. So let, let, let's go back to the early part of the campaign. You, you have some, uh, and, and Jonathan, I'll direct this to you. You, you have some really interesting uh, uh, behind the scenes detail about of the role that Obama was playing and Obama's, uh, shall we say, lack of enthusiasm for a, uh, a run by Joe Biden. I was wondering if you could bring us into this, uh, th- th- this meeting you describe in late October of 2019, where uh, Obama is kind of giving a, giving a rundown of, of, of the field and describing the various candidates. Uh, can you this this is the view this is how Obama is seeing the campaign uh, in, in October of 2019. Yeah, John, it's a really an, an interesting moment. Barack Obama goes into Eve's, uh, a restaurant in New York, uh, a brasserie, if you will. <laughs> uh, it's another kind of place I spend a ton of time. Um, but he goes in there to to meet with black corporate leaders for the most part. The group is uh, people who are donors to his foundation, and and it's a, a meet and greet. But it's also uh, an opportunity for for Obama to talk to them about what's going on in the campaign. And he he gets asked, he says, look, I'll take some questions. And he gets asked kind of the softball, which is what advice would you have for Biden, for Warren, for Buttigieg? And he goes goes on and on about uh, how how Elizabeth Warren uh, really, you know, could make for a good president, which um, at the time she was she was riding pretty high, if folks will remember. And he spends time trying to to sort of salt the ground for some of these black corporate leaders to to be on board with her if she ends up winning the nomination. And then he ch- moves to Pete Buttigieg and he says, you know, uh, this this is Obama speaking, not me. I want to be very clear about this. He's, he says Pete Buttigieg has a lot of, lot of obstacles to overcome. He's 38. He looks like he's 30. He's the mayor of a small town. He's gay and he's short. At the time, he's standing there in front of these black corporate leaders 
Pete Buttigieg was getting derided as Mayo Pete because of his inability to make uh, inroads in the black community. Um, and, you know, so this is, uh, and, you know, obviously there's some sensitivity from around uh, Pete Buttigieg's orientation. Pete had gone to Obama the year before and asked him for advice on how to handle that aspect of his candidacy. And so <laughs> here behind his back, President Obama is basically telling this group of leaders, these are the reasons that he uh, can't be president, including that he's gay. Um, and then Obama wraps up and someone says to him, hey, you forgot Biden. <laughs> Not a good sign. <laughs> and it's sort of, sort of a metaphor for where Obama's head was from the beginning of the campaign. And we go through some of those painful moments where Biden is trying to get support from people who supported Obama. You know, one of the opening scenes in the book is uh, behind the scenes at a Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, memorial event. Um, and, you know, Biden, uh, Biden is asking Al Sharpton for his support. Sharpton and Biden sit down and, and Biden sort of rolls out, you know, how he would run for president and ask Sharpton for his advice. And Sharpton understands what's coming. And eventually Biden's, you know, Biden's asking for an endorsement. And Sharpton says, look, you know, uh, Obama's not going to endorse this guy. I'm not going to endorse him either. And he says to Biden, well, you know, if you run, I'll surely check in with the president, which is, you know, uh, basically the, the, I'm washing my hair, uh, rather than going out on a date with your version of, of endorsement courting. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, in this book, what you see is a, a relationship between, uh, Obama and Biden. That's not exactly what, uh, I think a lot of people really expected. A lot of the reporting in the past has been about them being very close and, you know, they, they describe themselves as having a mentor mentee relationship, but, uh, it does not appear that they agree on who the mentor is. And I think that causes a lot of uh, friction between the two of them and has over the course of, uh, you know, basically 12 years now <laughs> that they've been, you know, since Obama uh, first put Biden on his ticket. And I want to pick up on that with you, Amy, because one of the one of the things we heard often from uh, from President Biden as a candidate early on in the primaries was, you know, why isn't Obama endorsing you? He'd say, well, I, I asked the president, I asked Barack not to endorse me. I said, I got to earn this on my own. And he, leaving the suggestion out there that that but for that, the, the former president would be involved. But you, you guys reveal that, that conversation, according to your reporting, never happened. Uh, <laughs> and on the other side of that, though, it, it, you've got some interesting details about how Obama did help coalesce the field behind Biden after South Carolina, right before Tuesday, Super Tuesday, that, that critical period where everyone was dropping out and it seemed like the party was coalescing so quickly. He was involved then. So, Amy, where, how, how did that evolve in, in, in his head, according to your reporting? Well, yeah, so it's really fascinating. Um, uh, I think Obama um, folks, people around him were sort of scratching their heads every time Biden said, I asked him not to endorse me. Um, and that was one of the most revealing details that we learned when we talked to people very close to him. Um, these are people that talked to him regularly and they basically said um, they never had that conversation. We don't know where that came from. Um, so that was kind of that was a fascinating thing when John and I were doing some reporting. I think what um, Obama was obviously trying not to tip the scales. He was accused of doing that in 2016. I think a lot of um, Bernie Sanders supporters always said, oh, he wanted 
Hillary, I think even Biden himself felt a little bit um, ignored by the president at the time. Um, some of his aides were sort of forcing him out and not to run um, and when he was considering it in 2016. So I think he was very, very careful about publicly not saying anything and even privately. Um, and so I think when when the, the field started to winnow down, what he did was he obviously had some conversations. We heard that he talked to these candidates throughout the campaign, was constantly doling out advice, some more to others. Um, but um, but he essentially um, told people like Pete Buttigieg, when things were kind of wrapping up, when Pete had already sort of made up his mind um, to drop out, that he had a, he had a lot of um, power, if you will, to sort of make that endorsement. Um, and that was sort of his moment um, to do that. And um, so he was having conversations and he told Pete Buttigieg at the time, you know, you will never have, um, you'll never be as on top as you are right now. Um, you'll never have that. So you might as well endorse Biden right now. And that's a detail we report in the book. And fast forward almost exactly a year, and it's Secretary Buttigieg. <laughs> so it exactly. kind of kind of worked out exactly according to that plan. John, I want to ask you about the Biden uh, Harris relationship because you you get into that now very famous debate moment where uh, where Kamala Harris engaged in what sure looked like a planned hit on uh, on Joe Biden on on his record, uh, uh, and your your reporting suggests that it was a planned hit, but also but kind of a nuanced one that there were some areas where. Uh, where then Senator Harris was pulling her punches. Um, Biden didn't like it, but uh, but Harris maybe didn't have entirely her whole heart into that line of attack that, that kind of vaulted her, at least momentarily, into the conversation. <laughs> Kamala Harris absolutely needed to get traction. She had launched pretty strong and then kind of faded, and she needed a moment. And she looked at, uh, at Biden as the right target to do that. We report uh, through our sources that she and her aides were talking about like the best way to execute an attack on Biden. He had been uh, talking about his relationships, his friendships with segregationist senators uh, going in. And so they, they sort of wargamed uh, in, in a couple different places in Washington and in Miami, right before the Miami debate in uh, the summer of 2019, they wargamed how she would go after Biden. Uh, and they really like homed in on uh, this school busing issue. And, Harris wanted to make the point, wanted to make the contrast that Joe Biden was against uh, busing, uh, busing kids on along racial lines, meaning uh, essentially against integrating schools that way. And she decides she's going to go after him on that. And then her aides are like, well, if, if we say this, there people are going to ask if you think Biden's racist for the next week. And so they keep workshopping it. Finally, she goes, well, why don't, you know, I'm going to lead with, I know you're not racist, or I don't think you're racist, which has kind of the double benefit of avoiding her having to answer that question for the next week. But also, I think when everybody heard her say that on the debate stage, they knew that the next thing out of her mouth was going to essentially charge Biden with being racist. And what's also interesting is his reaction. He seemed completely blindsided by this. And we report for the first time in the book, uh, that during a commercial break, he looked over at Pete Buttigieg and said, this is just a bunch of BS, although he didn't use the, the letters BS. Thank you for cleaning that up for us, uh, uh, John. I mean, you know, th 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 this is a family podcast. Um, 
appreciate that. Um, My kids what, watch a lot of Disney, so you know. I want <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to close out with one other thing you reveal on on Obama, which is interesting. I mean, first of all, I point out, you, you also you also report that uh, that Obama did provide a, a very key boost. It seems to, uh, uh, to to Biden at a key moment, which is getting you know encouraging Pete Buttigieg to uh, to to come over and to endorse as soon as he got out of the race uh, to endorse Biden, telling him this would be his point of maximum leverage, and that was a and that was a key moment, um, no doubt for for Biden. But the but the one that, that that struck me it's a it's a minor detail perhaps, but I. I, I it just it really surprised me that uh, after you, you report that uh, that President Obama did not call Biden from election night until after the election was called by the networks four days later. That that just seems amazing to me. So can, can you clarify when 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 did they talk and what and why? Why this gap? Why is he not calling? I mean, this is the this is election night. He doesn't. He's not calling. He's not calling Biden. I think there was a little bit of a freak out moment. Um, in um, you know, everyone was trying to. We we kind of report this in the book. Even the Biden people that night were kind of a little freaked out. Um, they they didn't realize. They thought that they could win. They didn't know how close it would be. Um, and I think the former president was sitting on the sidelines and sort of watching and going, God, I hope this is not deja vu in 2016, from 2016. And so I think that um, he was watching and kind of letting the process play out. We found it a little bit surprising as well when we were doing reporting. Um, I think people around him were a little bit surprised by it. Um, but I think, you know, it, it sort of shows, you know, they try to portray a very cozy relationship. And I do think that um, without a doubt that he loves his former vice president. Um, it's It just remains to be seen if if he thought that he was the best candidate. I think he maybe identified with other candidacies more um, than Biden's. But, um, but yeah, that remains unclear as to why he didn't call him until Saturday when, um, when Biden was declared the victor. I mean, this is a critical time. The election has has happened. There's you know, it looks like it's trending towards a, a a Biden victory, but you know, but again, the networks haven't called it. It's going on for days. It's just it, it's it's wild. Well, anyway, this is a uh, congratulations again. A, a really fascinating look um, at uh, a campaign truly like no other campaign that we've ever witnessed. Uh, and there's much more to talk about. I, you know, you've got great detail in here about how. Uh, the, the pandemic um, uh, affected the campaign. You even have a you know a top uh, aide to Biden saying that uh, that the pandemic the pandemic may have been the best thing that ever happened you know to, to to the campaign in terms of what it allowed you know Biden to do and how it allowed him to to position himself. But really good detail, and I, it's great. Thank you for coming on to talk to us about it, uh, Amy Parnes, Jonathan Allen. Congrats on the book. Thank you. Lucky. Thank you, guys. It's lucky. Available now. Out yesterday, available on Amazon or better yet, at your local bookstore. Thanks a lot, guys. Take Thank care. you. All right, Rick, that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Uh, we want to give a special thanks to our production team here. The, the, the just unbelievable Trevor Hastings. I mean, it, does he just keep getting better and better? Um, I mean, you know. Is that a rhetorical protection. question? I mean, yeah. I mean, just unbelievable. And Adia Robinson, who actually did all the work on this particular podcast. Thank you very much to both of you. We will be back next week with more powerhouse politics.